Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we rejoice and declare that You are the majesty on high. You are the ineffable, the unreachable, the incommunicable God. You are the transcendent Lord of glory, high above any other. Jesus Christ, You are the Word made manifest in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God, fully God yet fully man, our Redeemer, and yet the Creator and Sustainer of all things. And Your Holy Spirit, guides, comforts, leads into all truth, sustains and communicates these truths, your word to our heart. Blessed triune God, three in one, we worship you today. We thank you for these moments that we have that are given to us as a gracious gift of communion with each other because of Christ. Most of all, Communion with you because of the reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation of Jesus Christ our Lord, uniting God and man through his death on the cross. We revel in these truths, we take refuge in your mercy, and we cry out for revelation. We pray that your word would be written on the tables of our heart, that you would use the means of its proclamation to open the eyes of our understanding that the truths therein contained would be transferred to the soul of those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness because of the work of Jesus Christ manifest in their soul here today. Lord, you get all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. It's in your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord for the glorious opportunity of opening the Scriptures together again this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word, if you're able. While you're turning to Matthew 17, I'll remind you that we are in a series of events in the Gospel of Matthew that has led us to this point, to the Mount of Transfiguration. And as we feel the story coming forward and perhaps relate to the events as placing our, by placing ourselves in the narrative, we can imagine what it must have been like to be one of the disciples who is following our Lord Jesus Christ with growing, but ever so painfully, incrementally understanding of who this man is that we are following, our rabbi, but more than that, our Savior, more than that, the Son of God, the Messiah revealed in the flesh, also as He has shown us the Son of Man and we see these unfolding shades of His glory before us. And it seems as if, again, putting ourselves in the shoes of one of His disciples, every day contains a new, unfathomable revelation of who this Christ is that we are following. And so we are led with the disciples to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And this is where we pick up on the narrative. So stand with me if you would, if you're able. With your Bible open to Matthew 17 and let us read verses 1 through 13 that records these magnificent events for us. Matthew 17, 1. And after six days, 
Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and will restore all things. And I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the Holy Word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is The Momentous, The Momentous Transfiguration. The adjective momentous there, I use to try to denote the singularity of this moment. The powerful and symbolic imagery that is contained at this particular juncture and the unfolding story of Jesus Christ as He's revealing Himself in shades of glory to His disciples. And in this case, there is a select three that view this momentous, powerful, glorious, resplendent occasion And this is an opportunity and privilege that very few living human beings ever will or ever have appreciated anywhere close to this level of revelation. This is a snapshot of glory behind the curtain of the finite into the glorious infinite realm of heaven revealing to these three, Peter, James, and John, for a brief moment the glory that Jesus Christ had in His divine nature before in His humiliation He took on flesh the incarnate Son of God and came to earth. And to see behind the curtain that otherwise stands between in our finite and our human nature and in this sinful fallen realm, to see behind that curtain between this world and the next where the glorious pictures unfold in the Bible of a new Jerusalem shining with symbolic imagery that it's hard for us to comprehend, but to be able to see that with our senses truly must have been the most amazing privilege, burning and etching upon the consciousness and memory of these three for the rest of their days, an impression of who they followed, Jesus Christ, such that they surely never 
would forget. If a picture was ever worth infinite words, surely the picture of Jesus Christ transfigured before these three would be one of those moments. A truly trans-historical point of magnificent revelation where God is revealed in the flesh and Jesus is shining in His glory from His face and His clothing, reaching the very senses of those who are with Him gathered, Peter, James, and John. This would certainly be a a snapshot of this moment in Christ's earthly ministry would certainly bear the significance of something that would leave the disciples' mouth agape and them wondering if they had underestimated to infinite degree who Jesus Christ truly was. Truly, the significance of the Mount of Transfiguration in this event can only be understood in in its fullest measure when we take the whole of Scripture into account. And even then, any post-canonical commentary of this event, no matter how long or how deep it would try to be, would only underestimate what is going on here. It seems this paramount scene of heavenly majesty burned into the con- was burned into the conscience of the author of Hebrews. Though the author of Hebrews presumably himself was, was not there at this particular moment, When we read the opening verses of this great book, which we've touched on recently in our Hebrew series, it's hard to imagine that he doesn't have this moment delivered to him in the apostolic record clearly in view. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so there is a prophet, a prophet of prophets if you will, accompanying Jesus Christ in this moment, namely Elijah, and also a representative of the law, Moses himself, there with him. But in these last days, verse 2 of Hebrews 1, he has spoken to us by his Son. So that would be Jesus Christ, surpassing and fulfilling what the other two men represented with him. And of the Christ, he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, again Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. A reminder, too, this morning of the opening, the prologue of the Gospel of John. Here as well, quite probably, John has this moment in mind as he writes his Gospel. That indelible moment of the revelation of Jesus Christ and His ethereal resplendence were the incarnational realities of Jesus, even in His pre-incarnate state, are glimpsed by a privileged few. At this time in the record, in Matthew 17, just three privileged representative disciples were able to appreciate with their senses what was before them today in Jesus Christ shining in His glory. But praise the Lord, the Scriptures are clear, and we'll read this later in 2 Peter, 
our own spiritual eyes can be opened powerfully to the reality and meaning of this moment through the Holy Scriptures. And I pray that God would use this message and our meditating on the Word of God to awaken with illuminating power the meaning, the glory of the, of the Mount of Transfiguration and this event. The symbolic power of this occasion is weighty, staggering, and prophetic. May the Lord be pleased to grant us eyes to see its significance this morning. This would truly be, and ought to truly be for us, a paradigm-shattering event. It ought to have had, as it did on, no doubt on the disciples, awakened their eyes to see aspects of the person and work and glory of Christ that would entirely change their preconceived notions, limited understanding, and short-sighted view of who He may be. And I pray that as we read the Scriptures that this occasion might move us as His disciples today toward the same effect, a paradigm shift from an idea of Christ that may have fallen short of what we see in our own minds of what we see in this moment in the Gospel to be elevated to the position that He so deserves so that we, in this latest wave of, as His latest wave of commissioned disciples might be imbued with that same power that the disciples experienced when their eyes were open to the significance of Jesus Christ and Him glorified. I have a heading for four points, two of which we'll cover this morning in two messages. The heading's a little lengthy, bear with me. It is this, the significance of the transfiguration event relative to four contextual perspectives. We'd like to explore the significance of these verses, Matthew 17, 1 through 13, I'd like to explore the significance of this transfiguration event as it relates to four contextual perspectives. I'll list them for you briefly. First of all, the counter-reaction of the disciples. What can we learn about this event from the reaction of the disciples? It's there recorded for us. We'll cover that one first. Secondly, and (coughs) this will be the second main part of this message today, Christ's ministry arc. We'll explain that more later, but there's an arc, as it were, a kind of beginning and ending point of Christ's ministry that spans the entirety of the gospel. And recognizing where we are in that arc or in that storyline, in that unfolding revelation is helpful for us. And we see some clues in and around the uh, text here that will draw, I think, some significance of this transfiguration event to our minds today, and then on our next message when we return to Matthew 17, we'll cover also the covenantal implications, Old Covenant to New Covenant, and the, trans- and the transition of covenantal administrations, and then we'll finally close, Lord willing, with an exploration of the cosmic effects, the biggest possible truths, and the glorious revelation of the Godhead Himself, and the meaning that we can draw from this event as we see it unfold before our eyes in the pages of Matthew's Gospel. So first of all, this morning, significance of the transfiguration event relative to the counter-reaction of the disciples. I should note as we kind of unfold this message theme before you that these ideas and this catalog of significance 
that I'm giving you today is in a progressive order. It starts with the more minimal things, things that are of little lesser importance, or important nonetheless, but they move to greater and greater truths. I want to make that clear just to let you know that as we move through this study, there will be something of an ascendancy, even as I imagine it was probably slowly dawning on the disciples with more clarity and meaning as they thought about this event and later wrote of this event and moved and were moved later to write epistles and refer to this event of what indeed was going on here. Under the counter-reaction of the disciples, consider first of all a lesson, prescriptive versus impulsive worship. When I say prescriptive, I mean that the Bible gives us authoritatively, prescribes for us, gives us rules for worship. Now, there's other worship schemes and modes and reactions that we see sometimes in Scripture and oftentimes in our own life that are more just an impulsive reaction to what's going on before us or around us. And Peter was perhaps most famous for in his impetuous nature and personality, and he impulsively blurts out something of a worshipful statement, but in his uh, perhaps speaking too soon, we see that his words fall immeasurably short of the glory that this moment demands. And in verse 3, we read his reaction, and in the verses following, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Impulsive worship. Peter blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind, it would seem. The first thing he thinks to say, knowing perhaps that this moment demands a response, is he wants to build tents, shelters. I'll make three of them, he says. And addressing his Lord Jesus here, magnified and glorified before him, he says, one for you I will build, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But while he is still speaking, he's interrupted by a celestial voice in verse 5. And this is heaven's loudspeaker and the voice of God the Father, which occurs very infrequently in Scripture. But this is one of those glorious moments. While Peter is still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. We read in verse 5, And a voice from the clouds said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. It's very easy for us to misinterpret the weight of the moment and to react impulsively when oftentimes the right reaction is to simply behold. This was one of those times. Peter received a divine reprimand, at least implicitly from glory, as he's interrupted with this charge, listen, behold the Son of Man, the Lord of glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Surely any human effort in the moment to scrape together by the means around us 
a few sticks to cobble together a hut would be nothing and a reprehensible offering to make and a, a ridiculous endeavor to embark upon at this particular moment. Do not act at this moment in such a way. Simply sit back and receive. Be awed. Be amazed. Be stunned. Listen. Consider. Ponder. And behold. Peter's impulsive reaction quickly appears foolish. However, I would venture to say it was certainly sincere and a genuine response. But it was no doubt moved by impressions and by his experience and his personality. And thus it was not proportional to the glory that this moment deserves. The applications in Peter's response ought to hit fairly close to home, I trust, for us today. How often is our response to the testimony of the glory of the Lord based on our personality, our impressions, and our experience? It may be something that is genuine as far as it goes. It may be a sincere feeling. But sincerity and honesty, impressions and experience are not the worship that God ultimately deserves. Instead, it is something deeper and more profound than that. And rather than blurting out the first things that come to our mind, or acting impetuously, oftentimes the Word of God would prescribe for us simply beholding and considering the unfathomable weight, at least to a little greater degree, of the glory of Scripture. This moment deserved a response far beyond anything that Peter was capable of doing or constructing. And I'm reminded of a prophecy of old that came in the form of a prayer all the way back to Solomon's day. There was a time when buildings were commissioned to be built by the covenant faithful as a point of contact with a place, a geographical, symbolic place of God's residing with His people, of His abiding and dwelling presence with His covenant people. And in the Chronicles we read, and other places in the Old Covenant, where explicit instructions were given, schematics right down to the engineering and the decor were laid out, and artisans were commissioned to erect a beautiful temple to house the glory of the Lord. And so as I imagine, according to the contemporary standards, a peerless edifice arises in Judea, and this place is resplendent with the best that the craftsmen can offer the best materials, the purest gold, the finest silver, the most ingenious methods are employed, and cedars are shipped from afar. All that technology and man's applied sciences and artistry can afford is put together to build this magnificent temple. And then comes the day of the great commissioning. And Solomon says, this is, in as many words, futile. And insufficient. Anything that is constructed by the mere hand of man is not a sufficient abode for the dwelling of Almighty God. Solomon, in all his glory and wisdom, 
with this building that represented the best that humanity could collectively offer the Lord in construction, in worship, and praise, he knew felt immeasurably short of the glory that God deserves. If the Lord would be pleased to dwell in that temple made with mere hands, it would be because of his grace, not because of their effort. And that message is replete throughout Scripture. And it is a message today that we need to be reminded of with regularity. If the Lord is pleased to dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple of your own soul, it is not because of your effort, but because of His grace and His loving kindness alone. And the glory and the praise that is proportional to realizing the power of this event, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, indeed as the Word continues to use the language of transfiguring to represent, that is when we are in Christ and are being sanctified, we ourselves are being changed in form. That's how he describes this event here. That is transfigured. Not only is this a glorious moment where the glory of Christ is being shown forth from His visage to those who are viewing Him and His pre-incarnate resplendent glory. But the Bible goes on to say that we, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are being transfigured ourselves, changed in form into His image. And so when we consider these glorious truths, what is the worship? What is the proportional glory that these thoughts and these meditations demand? Well, certainly nothing that we in our own strength and effort can do. Only a testimony of His glory, His power, and His doing. Only a listening, a beholding, a a meditating on, and dwelling in deep contemplative thought at times, and then bringing to Him expressions of praise, using the Word of God to give us words to offer to Him, is worship worthy of considering such high and holy ideas. Peter's idea of worship here also had an implicit error there. He was willing to build and wanted to build these three huts, as it were, as if all three individuals were on equal plane. No doubt venerated in the And rightly so, to at least some degree in the culture of the Hebrews, was the office that Moses represented. The miracles of both of them, Moses and Elijah, the prophetic word of Elijah, and these were two heroes of the faith. But it must be understood in the context of this vision that Jesus Christ, as the book of Hebrews later underscores, is superior to both of them, to both of them combined to all of the Old Covenant history, to all of the angels, to every name under heaven, every name that can be named, the superiority of Christ is evident in this picture at the Mount of Transfiguration. And Christ Himself was seen here as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It wasn't that Christ was to be seen as in good company with these two men, but instead quite the reverse. Moses and Elijah were in good company with Christ. 
It was their association with him that gave, speaking now outside of time, their prior ministry any weight and merit. If it had not been for their faith, that is Moses and Elijah's faith, in the Messiah to come, their word would have been null and void. Their prophecy would have been false. And their works would have been reprehensible. But now here, their ministry in the timeline of God's redemptive history was sealed in that they were appearing with Christ. Thus the sovereign work of God that He had predestined, unfolding the entirety of His revelation through these sinners of old all the way to His sinless Son is pictured in this vision. And it would certainly be wrong to see Moses and Elijah elevated on a place anywhere close to Christ. No, indeed, if they were elevated at all, it was by God's grace. And the thing that was elevated in and through them was His Word and God's plan, not them as personalities in the least. In this moment, Peter's impetuous worship is preempted by the correct understanding, which graciously reveals from heaven what is going on here. This is a vision elevating the Son of God. Oftentimes, we may be guilty of judging Peter a little too harshly or a little bit too swiftly at the expense or and, and without searching our own hearts and realizing that we ourselves are often prone to reacting and worshiping in a way that is quite blind and not fully aware and realizing the weight and the glory of the Word of God. I was reminded, or I was given an illustration. I came across one recently. R.C. Sproul Jr. used this in a message, and he was describing what it's like to bring a gift to our Father That is, anything that we have to offer, something like what Peter did. And the best attempts that we can bring to the Lord in response to His revelation to us is similar to a cat bringing a dead mouse and leaving it on his master's doorstep. And this cat wants to impress and wants to, yeah, it's all in good intentions, but that cat wants to do the best that he can with the best of his ability to bring an offering to the one who feeds him. But that cat brings something that really has no value and we you know, hold it by its tail and plug our nose and we throw it away. That's a fairly good picture of sometimes the worship that we bring to the Lord when we presume that our best efforts are worthy of his eye, worthy of his ear. We bring often these dead mice to the doorstep of the Lord as it were, when really our attitude and posture should be one of surrender and submission and simply saying, I have nothing in my hand to bring. Only to thy cross I cling. It's amazing grace how sweet the sound of the grace that saved a wretch like me. The best expressions of our own worship are those that are informed by the Word of God, not our reactionary impulses. Let us consider this lesson as we consider the reaction of the disciples to the revelation of Christ in His glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. Secondly, under counter-reaction of the disciples, 
Let's consider a gospel-shaped experience that we see unfolding as the weight of this event is being uh, thrust upon the consciousness of these three men, Peter, James, and John. Verse 4, again reading, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, he was still speaking, when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Notice verse 6, the continued reaction of the disciples. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Again, verses 6 through 8. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. There's a gospel-shaped experience and reaction that we see here in the progression. First of all, as we've read, there's some presumption. There's some misunderstanding and some short-sightedness that we see pictured in Peter's impetuous reaction. His impulse is one of presumption. He's presumed something. He's made an error. He's misjudged the situation. And he's done so by a different standard, his own experience, presumably, than the Word of God. Yet there is grace even for Peter and the rest of the disciples. And the grace first appears in proclamation. In spite of Peter's presumptuous response, a voice from heaven declares to the onlookers, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. In our sin, in our fallen state, in the blindness of our humanity, which is our given default nature, our sinful nature, born sinners, dead in our transgressions, Every single one of us comes to Christ with presumptions, presumptuously. Indeed, worse than that, absolutely sin-laden. Yet there is a grace in the proclamation of the gospel when it touches the ear of a hell-bent sinner. And this proclamation comes in the authoritative declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King of kings and Messiah. He is judge, ruler, and creator of all the universe. And He is the reconciliation, the offering, the propitiation, the sacrifice for man's sin. And so the sinner's ears are graced with the proclamation of the gospel. And it comes as an authoritative declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord of glory, Lord of righteousness, and Lord of salvation. Listen to Him is the charge from heaven that fills the ears of Peter, James, and John like so much deafening celestial thunder. And so it is with the gospel proclamation yet today. It may come from a feeble and frail voice, but if it is the word of God echoed, it doesn't matter the intonation. That word carries weight. 
Jesus is Lord. There will come a day of reckoning. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Remember that this proclamation follows on the heels of a declaration from Christ Himself in 1627 when He said, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. This Christ, it is proclaimed, this beloved Son of God is the one who is not only Lord over salvation and evidences this incredible love of God in the sacrifice of Himself on the cross, but He is also the one that holds within His grasp the right of retributive justice, paying the sinner back exactly what he deserves in His unrepentant state, sending Him straight to hell for His offense and violence against the Holy Lord of glory. And so this is the substance and the connotation and the weight of this proclamation authoritatively delivered from God Almighty. In another, later in another week when we're covering this passage again, we'll draw out the parallels to the authoritative proclamation of God's law on Sinai, where a cloud and and a declaration of thunder and trumpet blast filled the ears of God's people then looking on. And there we have an idea of the covenantal weight of this exchange. There is indeed a gospel shape here to this response. As I've mentioned, there is first this presumptuous, the state of kind of lostness that the disciples are in. And secondly, there's a proclamation of who is shining before them this day. And then thirdly, there's the initial response of terror. The disciples heard this, it says in verse 6, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now I declare to you, I submit to you this morning, that when the gospel is preached in its Holy Spirit governed scriptural clarity, The initial response, when the heart is softened, is indeed terror. The sinner, as he realizes the weight of his offense against the holy God who holds retributive judgment in his hand, retributive right to pay unto him the the punishment that his sin so deserves, his initial response is indeed terror. Men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? What What must we do to be saved? There's a pricking of the heart and there's a touching to the very core of the being, the weight of the consequences and circumstances that we find ourselves in when it is shown to us very clearly, emphatically and undeniably that we have offended the Lord of glory. Thus we move from presumption to a proclamation of truth and then the terrifying realization of what that means. But then notice The grace of Christ, verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And here we see it is the touch of the Messiah, of the incarnate Lord, that alleviates their fear and renders them in good standing with Himself. Christ, at this point, as we see in the context here and all of Scripture, would have every right, and justly so, to condemn Peter to hell forever for his repeated, impetuous behavior and the other disciples 
As much as they were all sinners and did not deserve to stand in the presence of the Lord of glory. And indeed it says, it's clearly communicated in other portions of Scripture that no man will stand in the ultimate revealed presence of God as a sinner and live. No flesh indeed can bear the presence of God's glory. But because of Christ and His power to redeem and to reconcile, And to justify, we see a gospel picture here when he touches them saying, rise and have no fear. Here we see a metaphor of regeneration, the touch of Christ and his resurrection power that wipes away the fear of judgment and renders us in good standing with him when we are given a new nature, clothed in his robes of righteousness. And verse 8 seals this progression, this gospel shape of response with the following words, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Christ alone. And these men were being shaped by the delivery of the Word of God. As the author of Hebrews said in prior days, he had spoken, and in the context of Scripture, we know in more veiled and enigmatic, mysterious ways, through prophets, and even uh, through His law and so on. But in these last days, He has spoken with the clarity of His Son, through His Son. And this is one of those moments where the clarity of Christ's revelation is pictured. When Christ touches them, when they are lifted up, when they have no fear, when they rise, when they are in good standing with Him, they see... No competition for Christ's glory. No, nothing else and no one else save Christ alone. And these men were being shaped to be martyrs for the faith. To have a conviction and faith so deep that they would go to their own version of the cross. Not cross in any reconciliation sense, but indeed the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. As he has already said, from that time on, Jesus began to show the disciples that he would go to the cross. And then he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus was showing these men and revealing to their hearts the truth of his holy word such that they would do exactly that. Bear the weight of the cost of following him and testify and proclaim no matter if they were beaten, crucified, scorned, or rejected, that Jesus only is Lord, and Him only will I serve. The counter-reaction of the disciples continues. We have this prescription, or this lesson on prescriptive versus impulsive worship. Secondly, we have a lesson in a gospel shape of the experience of the disciples witnessing this event. And finally, we have some first principles of understanding that are given to us in the explanation of what has happened here and also the greater implications for how God is revealing Himself and His truth, His redemptive work to fallen man. Verses 9 through 13, we read, And as they were coming down the mountain, so after this has occurred, they are descending, they're having a conversation about what they've witnessed and the implications thereof. Jesus first commands them in verse 9, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? 
He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Here implicit in the record, we have delivered to us the first principles of understanding. You would think that after this event of such magnificent proportions, that the disciples would immediately get it, that it would click in their minds, that everything would fall into place. Oh, this glorious Jesus, He is the Savior, He is the Messiah. He is the one we will follow. Oh, John the Baptist, he must have been speaking of him. He must have been the Elijah promised to precede him, speaking symbolically of that role to make straight the way in the wilderness. But no, it did not all come into their mind in one rush of understanding. There were some stumbling blocks yet remaining. And one stumbling block for the disciples at this time came in the form of modern scholarship. It was the scribes and what they had taught and what they had assumed the scriptures were saying that created confusion in the minds of the disciples, even in the face of this glorious revelation. The disciples asked him, you can hear the confusion between the lines of verse 10, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, your scribes are not the authority of the word of God. And though they have the word at their fingertips, that does not guarantee that they understand the weight, the beauty, the power, the connections, the clarity, the theme therein contained. And it is the same today. We must first, I'm working on a blog right now and this phrase is in my mind, it came to me recently. When we come to the word of God, if this is the word of God, we must first submit to it before we can understand it. If this is the Word of God's submission to its authority here represented is prerequisite for understanding. This was the issue with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. The religious elite of that day, it wasn't for lack of intellect that they didn't understand. In fact, they were graced with probably more than most of the average men around them. It was, in fact, an authority issue. They presumed to be an authority over the Scriptures. They were the ones who told everyone what the law meant according to their standards of learning, education, intellectual uh, accolade and aptitude and so on. But the scribes didn't always get it right. And indeed, in this case, they got it wrong. They were misleading the people as to what to expect in the fulfillment of old covenant prophecy, who was Elijah and who was Christ. I would just issue by way of warning to you today, that we ourselves are not immune to this kind of error. I've been listening a lot these days to just a lot of the internet scuttlebutt, if you will, on modern scholarship and things that are being you know, bantered around back and forth. And you can find any number of crazy and loopy conclusions that people come to and write books about and doctrinal theses center around. But I'll tell you how to discern between them, and this is not my advice, it's simply that of Scripture. Pay close attention to what is the standard of authority. Do the voices that we listen to and interact with, whether it be on television, Christian radio, or in the books that are on our shelves, 
the voices that we interact with communicate to us a certain humility that they have submitted to the authority of the Word of God as a prerequisite for understanding? Or do they create for themselves and others stumbling blocks of understanding? The first principles of our knowledge of gospel truth is that first we must say that Jesus Christ is Lord and His Word is sufficient. And it was in the disciples here in their experience the sufficiency of the Word of Christ that was in the Latin the principium condescendi. That was the first principles of understanding. There are some prerequisites in place here and it is the Word of Christ that leads the disciples to realize what is going on before them. Their mere experience was not enough, and certainly the teaching of the culture around them would often lead them and others astray. But paying attention to the word of Christ revealed to their hearts the meaning of what was taking place. And you see it dawning on them in verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And at the word of Christ, it clicked. It fell into place. The Word of God indeed is sufficient. Secondly, this morning, again, the heading, the significance of this transfiguration event relative to four contextual perspectives. Now, relative to the the context of the reaction of the disciples, we've uh, perhaps touched on three principles that we can learn or that add to the significance of this exchange. But secondly, and more importantly, I want to touch on Christ's ministry arc this morning. As Christ begins to unfold to the people in the form of proposition and in the form of offering His own life as a sacrifice for many, there is quite a long arc of His sermon, if you will, that spans the text. And this is a concept I think is helpful to understand what does the gospel look like in the gospels versus a sermon that might be preached in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you'll read, as the disciples go forth and bring the good news, they will include in one relatively short talk the full and final and complete work of Christ. But this arc of revelation is more gradual in the Gospels. I'll remind you in the previous chapter, verse 21, that there's a shift in Christ's proclamation, and he says, from that time or the author records, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now this is a new thought and such a surprising one to the disciples that again, Peter in his impetuous nature, first thing he does is pull Christ aside and rebuke him. They could not imagine the disciples here a Messiah that had power over death. They could imagine, they could conceive of a Messiah that had power over governments, power over Rome, but not power over the grave. Who does this matter? That's not something that is even comprehensible in their understanding. Jesus is continuing to emphasize in prophetic foresight what he will do in the coming days. He says in verse 9 in the next chapter, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Again, he has prophesied his death and again here his resurrection. It says later, So the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands in verse 12. Jesus is prophesying that just as John the Baptist suffered, you remember he was beheaded at the hands of the authorities, namely Herod, Christ himself will suffer at the hands of the authorities. 
And it's starting to dawn on them, at least at this moment, that he's speaking of John the Baptist. But the disciples still don't get it. In verse 22, same chapter, as they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Verse 23, And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. As if they hadn't heard the final phrase of his prophecy, he will be raised on the third day. We see in the arc of Christ's ministry, in these moments where the Mount of Transfiguration is sandwiched between this prophecy of Christ's passion by his own mouth, that Calvary is predestined. We see that these events that are unfolding are superintended, foreordained, and predetermined. Now, the disciples will realize this after the Holy Spirit draws to their full attention the weight of the gospel. They will later pray prayers like Acts chapter 4, I believe, where they say and they confess that you had gathered everyone you anointed, including the authorities, to crucify Christ and so on according to what God had predestined to take place. But here... At this particular point, that thought was utterly foreign to the disciples. But if they later, upon the events and unfolding of Jesus' passion, would only remember this time, they could be encouraged and exhorted that this was something that was unfolding according to the Father's perfect plan, and there was no need ultimately to be distressed and to be discouraged. Because God was doing something here that would outsmart the enemy at every turn and even use his son's death against Satan himself to ultimately defeat the kingdom of darkness. At the moment of transfiguration, when we behold with the disciples in verse 3 that there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them, with him, and Peter said to Jesus and so on, that one detail of two men who were long dead appearing alongside Christ is visible evidence of the resurrecting power of Almighty God. Right here in the transfiguration event, not only is it sandwiched between prophecies that Christ says, I will be raised up, but He demonstrates His own and the Godhead's own resurrecting power in the appearance of these two men alongside Him who have been dead for some thousands of years. Calvary is predestined, and it is obviously so in this record. And the emphasis of the events that are unfolding before us in this gospel record is so clear when we consider the significance of the Mount of Transfiguration. The devil, not for a single moment, had the upper hand. There was no sovereignty held within the authoritative grasp of a Herod or a Pilate or a Roman soldier that would nail that incarnate hand to the cross. None. Again, I say none. It was only God and His delegated plan, in His predestined plan that caused these events, ultimately speaking, to unfold according to His every prophecy and every perfect dictated detail from before time had even began. And this is more obvious as we consider the significance of this moment, the moment of transfiguration. In the book of John, 
the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, there is a very interesting prophecy that emphasizes with even greater strength the truth of these claims. I'll read it for you briefly. Again, John 2, 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus, you see, had just cleansed the temple, had overturned the order of the day, and he had basically thrown into utter chaos those who claimed a right to govern the temple worship and so on. And thus he himself showed himself to be authoritative over such things. And people are saying, who do you think you are? And he answers this way, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus had said, and Jesus had shown that he would raise his own body up from the dead. And these words that were delivered, and these signs that were given to the disciples, came in handy later when he rose from the dead. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit chose to have an awakening of understanding beyond what they were capable to view here of what was going on in the ark of Jesus' ministry and redemptive work. This is indeed a counterintuitive kingdom-building plan. Christ's ministry at this point has not been seen as successful for obvious reasons. He has preached the kingdom of God come and at hand. He's been preceded by John the Baptist who has also preached repent. Because the kingdom is imminent, even upon you. But in Matthew 16, Jesus claims and Jesus Jesus proclaims and declares and reveals that this kingdom would be built in a way that is counterintuitive to man. He tells Peter, as we've mentioned in our previous message, that that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so this kingdom would come in a different way. It would be built through His church. And it would be built not as a top-down structure that unseats powers and authorities through a political coup and through the uh, marching armies and political parties and uh, elections and the like. But instead it would come as a grassroots organic seed planted in the hearts of an unlikely few that would grow into a fearless gospel proclamation that would plant the seed of the word of the kingdom in soil of hearts that God had prepared to receive it. And over time, it would incrementally produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold until that mustard seed had bloomed into a tree whose gospel limbs had spread to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. There's kingdom comparisons that Jesus gave, some of which I just referenced in discourse number three, back in, I believe, chapter 13. There's also, a kingdom, there's also another discourse coming up in the next chapter, in chapter 18, 
which is addressed specifically to the church. But here in between, Christ is giving an exclamation point of his own power and authority to show, even though this kingdom comes counterintuitive to what humans think is authoritative and powerful, don't be fooled. The power behind this kingdom building effort is the incarnate Lord of glory. And this is the Son of God. And everyone must listen to Him or else. In Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11, there is a, the record of the testimony of Christ. And there's another mountain moment, if you will, here. In verse 8, again the devil took him, that is Christ, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. At this moment in the record, In Matthew chapter 4, the devil tempted Jesus as if true kingdoms are established through humanistic or satanic agency, through the external, through the means and ways of man as their primary effective tool and as their impressive testimony. This was not the way the kingdom of God would be built. And on this moment, the true moment of glory... Christ ascends the moment, and at this point, he is not accompanied by Satan, who whispers the counterfeit in his ear. But now he is accompanied by a voice that trumpets from the heavens, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the true ascent up the mount of kingdom authority. And in context here, Christ is declaring how his kingdom will be built. And it will not be built by man's means and satanic uh, ways and, and those kinds of syncretistic efforts. But instead, it would be built in God's time, God's way, through his son, his word, and his people. Finally, the significance of the Mount of Transfiguration, we can consider by way of commission credentials. Jesus Christ would commission these disciples with others to bring the message of the kingdom at the close of this gospel in Matthew to the nations to testify with authority that Jesus Christ is Lord and to make disciples of all peoples for the glory of God. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, Peter, with apostolic credentials, recalls this very event, and with this section of Scripture I'll close. I'd like to turn you there. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle recalls this moment, now with spirit-led clarity, that had been revealed to him and his two cohorts on mountain, on that mountain. Gene read this. I'd like to read it again. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, verse 16, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, 
This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Lest our impulse, our response, be as presumptuous as Peter's, and upon hearing and meditating again on the moment of the Mount of Transfiguration, we are guilty of believing that to appreciate its power you had to be there, Peter sets the record straight. The Mount of Transfiguration is used as an illustration in Peter's epistle here to correct a reaction that it must not be as powerful or as real because I didn't experience the revelation of Christ with my own eyes or my own physical hearing when he walked this earth. Peter corrects this reaction and he uses his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration as an illustration of a superior means of grace. I took some time and the most glorious rhetoric from the shallow pool of my own creative understanding to try to illustrate to you the impressive glory and moment it must have been when those disciples saw Jesus revealed in His pre-incarnate glory. And I do wish, and I'm sure you could share this sentiment, I do wish I had been there. But this is the incredible message of Peter's epistle. There is a superior means of grace for us than visibly seeing Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration for ourselves. And he declares it to be the Word of God, sovereignly preserved, active, powerful, with no shelf life, that cuts like a two-edged sword, as the author of Hebrews records, right to the heart of the individual, and is powerful to accomplish the ends wherein God has sent it forth, it never returns void, and is our key to gospel glory. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Again, verse 18, Peter says, For we were with him on the holy mountain. But listen closely, verse 19. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we beg for your forgiveness this morning if we have ever considered the experience of coming in contact with your word as lesser then coming in contact with your glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. We thank you that you, by your grace, have given us an even superior means to know you, to understand you, and to declare you. Lord, this is too amazing for us to quite grasp in a mere sentence or two. So I pray, Lord, 
that the weight of this message that is delivered by your apostles to our ears this morning by the Holy Spirit, if I've articulated it correctly, I pray that it would do its work on the inside of us, reminding us that we have every reason to worship, to praise, to stand in faith and confidence, to unabashedly proclaim that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of the Father, Lord over every other name that is named in heaven or on earth below. We thank you, God, that you have given us this means, and I pray that we would steward it well, so that upon your soon return or when you call us home, you would find us busy about the work of kingdom expansion. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.